This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irok the end of Chacht Erechor. Agus Suligum, a Machan show, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfame. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Max Clifford, how are you? I'm very well, Alex, and you? Yeah, I'm really good, but you haven't got anything on me, have you? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but oh, I'll good. check tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's my biggest fear, you see. You come in here and then tomorrow is front page. Once one of the most influential men in the British tabloids, PR guru Max Clifford split his time between carefully managing his client's image and publicly destroying the reputations of others in the showbiz and political sphere. Slept with a cabinet minister? Feeling a pillar of society has let you down? Max Clifford is your man. Max, the mastermind behind many of the most lurid tabloid stories, is the most powerful publicist in Britain today. But Clifford was harbouring a dark and secret past. Years of sexual abuse throughout his career of women and girls as young as 15. I've um, I've been told by my lawyers to say nothing at all. I'm Kevin Doyle and today on the Indo Daily I'm joined by Sarah Cadden, journalist with the Sunday Independent, to discuss the rise and fall of Max Clifford and the deep misery he heaped on those in his path. Time to say sorry, Mr. Clifford. Sarah, let's start with the really simple question of who is Max Clifford? Give me his background, his upbringing. Clifford was an English celebrity rep. The PR Association of the UK would completely deny any attachment to him. But he represented stars rather than celebrities, as he put it, for about 50 years in the UK and was absolutely self-styled PR guru, Max Clifford, who sold some of the biggest, most salacious kind of attention grabbing stories from the kind of mid 80s right up to the middle of the teens in the 21st century. And he was never a respected character, but he was always someone to whom people paid attention right up until his death. 
He was, in many ways, a spin doctor for the stars, if you like. So before we had influencers and all that sort of stuff, we had, I think he used the phrase there in the 90s and the noughties, PR gurus, which basically meant everyone believed that what he said was happening in the world was definitely a version of reality. He always claimed, and in many cases this has been proved untrue, he claimed that people always came to him looking to be kind of protected from stories breaking about them, about misdeeds and, you know, peccadilloes and misdemeanours in their personal lives or with grudges to settle, but that he was always sort of shielding them, protecting them from the press. Every member of, of, the, of the press was attacking her. Friends of hers were coming out and selling stories. She came to me and said, help. And I taught her to handle the media. I taught her to make the best of a bad situation. I didn't break the story. No, That's exactly minute, what Max, we did. Max, Max, you and Margaret, 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 yeah. And in a number of cases, particularly the bigger stories that he had, it was very much the case that he went after those stories and those people himself. But he was very good at setting himself up. He was the guy who apparently insisted that in the stories he sold, he was described as... PR guru Max Clifford. So there was a huge amount of braggadocio to the man, always name dropping. 80% of my business is taking care of stars and companies worldwide, which is what I've done for 30 years since I launched the Beatles. Sinatra, Mohammed Ali, they're quite well known and I get a lot of money from that. Always enticing people in with the idea that he could connect them to anyone in the world. Something of a puppet master in some ways, in that he had all, allegedly, according to himself at least, he had all these stars wanting his attention and him to look after them. And on the other hand, he had the media thirsty for stories, for gossip that he had and could give to them when it suited him. Yeah. And, you know, you can look back on his history and say he really kind of manipulated and tapped into the worst prurient instincts. He would have said that he was only giving the newspapers and then the readers of the tabloid newspapers what they wanted, whereas they would have said, well, he just kept coming at us with this stuff. And if we didn't take it, somebody else would. And, you know, for example, in stories that he had of politicians with extramarital affairs or, you know, dalliances of outside of their marriages, he would have said that this was kind of him blowing apart, for example, John Major's family values manifesto. Of, Public interest argument of Yes, sorts. exactly. But one of his huge stories, for example, was the affair between then Conservative Minister for Sport, David Meller, and a woman called Antonia de Sancha. And the big thing that caught in that was that while they'd been having sex, David Meller wore his Chelsea jersey. He was a big Chelsea supporter. David Meller has said himself, will follow him to his grave and probably after his death, that will be in every single obituary about him. It's particularly terrible for your, for your family. For your family. And, uh, you know, but I think it is the sense that there's no morality in this. You know, unless one lives in one of those biblical worlds where anyone who dares to have an affair, I mean, there wasn't an employee, there was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing. But once you're there, lined up as the victim, everyone can take a chunk. And he said in the Levison inquiry into um, press behaviour and standards that Clifford completely made this up, but it caught. And really, I suppose when you look back, that was all that seemed to matter. These things just sparked 
He did have an ability to create things that caught the attention and sparked attention and that ran and ran and ran and caused extraordinary ripples and ruined a lot of people's lives. But that was his magic power, which he probably didn't choose for good. We'll talk about some more examples of that in, in a few moments because he would argue that he made some people an awful lot of money off those stories that weren't necessarily true. But one thing about being the gatekeeper that he didn't do. Very often we hear about these kind of PR people in the backgrounds making the celebrities look good or trying to manage the narrative around a celebrity. He became a kind of a cult personality in his own way. What was his persona? His persona, I suppose, was stunningly unapologetic. There was never a word about the casualties of any of the stories that he pushed. And it was always very much that he was exposing what needed to be exposed, shedding light on behaviour that lurked in the shadows, exposing the kind of feet of clay of people who were, you know, held in high esteem. And he had a very abrasive manner, but he also seemed kind of super confident and possibly made people believe him because he seemed to have no shred of self-doubt himself. Once you have a client, how much control do you exercise over them? As much as possible. Why is that? Because I know my business. They don't. So you want them to do as they're told, you believe in their interests? No, I I believe in, in showing them. What's the best way for them? He started out, he had a job in a, in a department store. He seems to have been sacked from that. He got a job as a journalist, which he kind of took great pride in all the way through his career. And then he got a job in publicity for EMI. And I think it seems like once he started kind of rubbing shoulders with celebrity, that he really took to that. He was very drawn to it and eventually set up his publicity agency. EMI Records would have had a lot of big names on their books at various stages. The Beatles, Bob Dylan, people like that was kind of now suddenly in his sphere a little bit. But it really was at the age of 27 after you say he set up his own Max Clifford Associates and he started signing up his own big clients. But there was one story that has followed Max Clifford to his grave, certainly. Yeah, in the late 80s, a headline that to this day survives, Freddie Starr ate my hamster. So younger listeners might not be able to picture, but I can still certainly picture and I was not around. Well, I was around, but I was far too young to be reading The Sun at that stage. It's an iconic front page of The Sun and that was the headline. Give me some questions. Did you really eat that hamster? Be honest with me. You can ask Max Clifford. <laughs> Freddie wanted it stopped. Of course, because it worked so well, within a few weeks, the whole thing was his idea. That's the way that stars tend to be. But Max Clifford's thesis later would be that he made Freddie Star millions and millions on the back of the fame that came with that story. Yeah, and he really seemed to also think that as long as that was the perceived gain, then it really didn't matter what else went with it. So, you know, the collateral damage was irrelevant. Maybe what only mattered was the number, you know, on the check. But it it wasn't just that for him. He really did seem to thrive on the notoriety and 
I suppose, his reputation. He was making money left, right and centre, it would appear at least, because he was obviously charging clients for his advice. He was also charging newspapers for some of the information he was feeding them. Once he discovered that on one story he could earn from it multiple times, then that was when he really kind of hit the big time. So he could break something with, say, a Sunday newspaper, but then he could get some TV appearances out of it the following week. But he wouldn't give every single detail to that exclusive. He could drip feed extra bits as it went along. And that way you earned multiple times on one thing. And he was charging 20% fee on whatever the client made. Tell me about some of the other front pages, Sarah, that he was involved in. Well, in the late 80s, he sold a story relating to a woman called Pamela Borges and she had been Miss India at one point. And the kind of original angle on the story was that she was a House of Commons researcher who was also a sex worker. The spin on it had been a kind of public interest. This person has access to you know, state secrets kind of things. And this is what's going on. What, what kind of later emerged was he had had contact with a woman who ran a brothel and he'd gone looking for information, dirt essentially, on clients of hers. And out of this emerged that this woman, Pamela Bordas, was allegedly having simultaneous relationships with Andrew Neil, who was then the editor of the Sunday Times, an editor of another UK newspaper and a government minister. Oh, and also arms dealer Khashoggi. So <laughs> that was an absolutely huge story and did a huge amount of damage. But Max Clifford would have claimed very much in the public interest. How is it that you know so many of the top people in Britain? Who was the man behind you who pushed you into the corridors of power? And Pamela, why are you so frightened? Starting tomorrow, Pamela Bordes tells all to Linda Lee Potter only in the Daily Mail. There was other stuff that he at least claimed uh, to have brokered or worked on that, that were big in the headlines. T- simpler things, maybe like Sherry Blair's pregnancy at one stage, some of these sexual allegations against Gary Glitter. Like these were big stories that really dominated the headlines. He must have, for want of a better phrase, pissed off a few people along the way as well. Absolutely. Hated and feared. And feared, I'd say, was a position that he almost relished because it lent an extraordinary sense of power over people. He spoke himself and wrote about it in his autobiography that sex parties were kind of part of his recreational habit. And he seemed to have been more the voyeur at these sex parties where he did collect a lot of incriminating evidence on people, taking photographs of them and, you know, thereby allegedly using this to shut people up along the way. Yeah, leverage. You know, he was a person who liked to portray people in the worst possible light and to kind of view them that way and watch on. Well, karma would come for him eventually because he became the story or part of the story, I suppose you could say, as part of Operation Utree, which listeners might remember. But just recap what that was. So Operation Utree started out of emerging allegations about Jimmy Savile. And we obviously all know now that many, many people knew for many years that Jimmy Savile wasn't just the benevolent kind now then, now then, Jim will fix it character. 
and that he had decades of sexual abuse of children and, and young people. and Grotesque in what emerged. Yeah, and all behind a front of, you know, amazing charity work and I'm a close friend of Prince Charles and all this kind of persona that he peddled. So out of Operation Utri and Jimmy Savile, there were kind of tentacles to that of others associated with Jimmy Savile and connected to all of that. And then just others who may have behaved in similar ways, but had nothing to do with Jimmy Savile. And that's the category into which an investigation into Max Clifford fell. So a number of allegations came against him from particularly young girls. Tell us about that. So there were like many, many allegations against him from young girls. 12 was the age of one that arose, uh, 15 girls in their teens. And a very common theme through it was that they were groomed by him, lured in by promises that they would meet famous people. David Bowie was mentioned. I can hook you up with talent agency. One of the girls whom he was convicted of a sexual assault on had met him and she said later he groomed her parents he told them she'd be the next Jodie Foster that she'd amazing talent and you know got the trust of the family and that way she ended up with him on her own that became a sexual abuse situations and in which again he is said to have photographed some of the girls and then told them, if you ever tell anybody, you'll be destroyed. A dozen girls burst into your dressing room, changing room or whatever, and that's the kind of thing that did and and would happen. You don't actually sit there and ask for birth certificates. Some of the strategies that he employed through his work, he seems to have employed through the abuse for which he was handed down eight convictions ultimately. He always utterly denied being a paedophile. It went to trial and as you say, he was convicted. Tell me about the trial. A lot of people who observed it found quite bizarre. He seemed sneering, kind of almost sniggering, entirely kind of disrespectful of the process as if it was just rubbish and a witch hunt and how could this be happening? And there were kind of bizarre moments in it where there was a huge amount of discussion on both defence and prosecution sides about the size of his penis. Women who gave evidence in court had gone to him because he was Max Clifford, the man who could open doors. I was 19 and was doing some modelling. I was shown into his office. I met him. It all seemed fine. He undid his flies and exposed himself. It was odd because he didn't just show himself to me. He was talking about it and in a derogatory manner, saying, don't you think it's small and what can I do with it? One young woman said that he had phoned her pretending to be someone else who was telling her Max Clifford has a tiny penis, but it was actually Max Clifford. You know, really strange evidence through the whole thing that seemed to sort of trivialise in many ways what was happening. And one journalist who wrote about it said that he a few times popped his head in the door of the press room and told them things that seemed incredibly lighthearted and contrary to what was going on. And famously, he um, stood behind a television reporter who was reporting 
to a news programme about the trial and he aped the reporter's hand gestures and mouthed along what the reporter was saying on camera. Hello, Max. Thank you. I'm fine, thank you. You okay? Yeah. We'll carry on, shall we? We'll carry on. Okay. And it was all a process of kind of eye rolling at the whole thing, except that ultimately he was convicted on eight charges. So what is the media strategy when you're a convicted criminal about to be jailed for a string of sex offences? Clifford chose to pose and, when he spoke to me, seemed ready for the inevitable. Are you prepared for what's ahead today, Mr Clifford? You just have to make the best, don't you? Whatever life gives you. And obviously that's what I've got to do. Clifford was taken away in a prison van. His spectacular downfall complete. It's the ultimate PR disaster. Goes back to what you said at the very start. He never apologised or admitted any wrongdoing for anything he ever did in his entire career. And then, as it turned out, I guess, in his private life as well, he went to jail Yeah, and he died in jail. He died in jail three years later and like his health seemed to decline very quickly. After his death, there was an inquest into, into how he had died. And his daughter had said that she believed that he was medically, you know, very badly treated in prison, didn't get the medication he needed for his heart and that he'd had to endure cold showers and that conditions were terrible for him and that this had led to what did sound like a very rapid decline. But um, the inquest did show that there had been some confusion about pills he should have been taking. There had been refusal on his part to take medication, apparently, as well. And that this contributed, but that the care he had got had been as good as anyone else was getting in the prison. I think it was one health person during the inquest actually remarked that he had a particularly high quality mattress and they couldn't figure out how he had managed to obtain such a thing inside yeah. the prison walls. Kind of his, his final sleight of hand, really, isn't it? How did... He do that. But, you know, yes, it was a pathetic end, but there were kind of plenty of people saying no one's shedding a tear for Max Clifford and he got what he deserved. David Meller among them. He built his whole business on what he'd done to me. And it was so cynical. I'm actually unkind about many people and I don't bear grudges, but I make an exception with him. I hope he rots in hell. And my thanks to Sarah Cadden. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Ian Doyle, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by Rory Bowens. Archive clips were from Channel 4 News, Sky News, The Guardian, Euronews and The Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to follow and leave us a review. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel, 0818-715-715.